So two weeks ago, uh, we uh, continued our discussion on uh, uh, the, the look at the Christian view of, of salvation, especially the order of our salvation, about what God does uh, to bring about the salvation of his people. And two weeks ago, we talked about the fact that God calls and regenerates his people uh, prior to anything. That is, there's this experience of being born again uh, that God brings his people through. Well, what I want to look at today is exactly what happens in the sinner once they've been regenerated. <clears throat> and what the theologians have referred to this is, is a process of conversion. Okay? So regeneration is the thing that brings about the new birth. And then logically, what issues out of human beings in response to, to being born again is faith and repentance, or in one word, conversion. Now that alone is a very big deal, uh, because we've established ourselves as you know, making sure that the sovereignty of God is always prior to any response that I make uh, in light of that grace. Uh, and so faith and repentance are these two huge uh, 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 topics that, um, that, and I was trying to sort of figure out a way to introduce this all uh, last week. And um, I, I can tell you that I don't think that there's really any topic that tripped me up more uh, when I was growing up in, 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 a, in a church sort of um, uh, religious kid background than the question of, of faith and repentance. I knew very intuitively that there were things in the Bible and stuff that I was supposed to believe. I felt like you couldn't throw a rock into the New Testament without somebody telling me that I needed to believe something. But at the same time, this just cut off, look at there. Um, at the same time, whenever people would talk about, um, about repenting, this sort of shadow of like, well, did I repent enough? Did I repent well? Did I repent correctly? That would suddenly start to haunt me. And so I have had a lot of joy and, and, and a lot of sort of a personal driven interest in trying to figure out exactly what we mean when we say that I believe in something. And if right now you're being dismissive about it, being like, well, of course we know what it is to believe. I mean, you just believe. You, you've probably not had any conversations with people who've wrestled with this. Because when you wrestle with it, it really becomes a challenge to define, well, how do you believe? How do you know when you're believing? Have you repented? What really is repentance? And how is it involved in the Christian life? Okay? So, um, but here's my premise. Before we look at this, oh yeah, here we go. This is our, uh, this is our look at the order of salvation, where we had regeneration prior to conversion, uh, which is uh, repentance and faith. Um, but look, here's what I want to sort of set in front of you this morning. Uh, first of all, uh, the Bible's view of the heart. Now, if you've sat through any of my Sunday schools, you've probably heard me talk about this, and I'm going to do it again until you get it. I'm just kidding. Um, no, this has become something that has, has, has colored this whole discussion for me. Um, when you go to a doctor, uh, when you're a minister and you talk about what it's like to be a doctor, doctors are always like, that's so cute when he tries to figure out like, what our life is like. Um, but I'll say this, a doctor goes to school as much as he does so that he can be assured that the medicines that he is distributing to his people for various and sundry ailments is in keeping with the way in which your body works. You would think very unprofessional, a doctor who walked into a wall full of medicines and was like, well, let's see. Well, we tried the purple ones last time. 
Maybe we'll have more luck with the pink ones. I don't know. Well, no, medicines have to be, as it were, matched to the constitution of the people that those medicines are being given to. This has been my thing. I think one of the reasons why people trip up on faith and repentance and the medicine that that brings to to, to a sinful soul because they've not yet had a doctor's understanding of the nature of your soul prior to. And so what I want to do for the first 10 minutes in this first section is to look at what the Bible understands as your heart because the place... The locale, the, 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 the field of action where faith and repentance functions is in your heart. But if, my, if you're anything like I am, you don't know what that is. And so then we're going to look at the Bible's view of, the, of faith and then the Bible's view of repentance. Okay? So over the years, I have been working on uh, borrowing from a lot of different places what I hope is a, is a relatively simple drawing uh, that tries to illustrate how the Bible understands Really what makes you, you? <laughs> what is it really motivates you? And there are all kinds of attempts that you get. Now look, this is the complicated drawing. I know those of you in the, any, more than five rows back are going, yes, that makes zero sense to me. Uh, but just bear with me for a second. I'm going to try to zoom in on some of these to, uh, to, to get some sense of understanding. First of all, some of you are saying, what do you mean try to grasp uh, uh, how the Bible makes me, me? Well, When I was growing up, we were presented with a way of looking at myself that was preoccupied with my mind and my heart. That is, someone said something to the effect, well, you have less head knowledge about, you know, God and the gospel, but what you lack is you lack heart knowledge. Now look, as a person growing up in the church, I didn't feel that I had the freedom to raise my hand and be like, well, how do I do that? Like, so I've got this stuff in my head, but I want it in my heart. I would even have youth evangelists would appear at, at, at um, you know, uh, events saying things like, there's really nothing more that's wrong with your spiritual life that, you know, that 12 inches can't solve, which is like the distance between one's brain and one's, <laughs> one's cardiac functions in their mind. And again, that's supposed to be illustrative, and, but, but it left me really bound up. Well, how do I do that? Here's some knowledge, and apparently my heart is where I really feel stuff. Well, how do you make yourself do that? How do I force myself to feel something that I don't feel? And is that what the Bible even means by the heart? Well, in my first years of going to seminary, I discovered actually that that's not the Bible's view of the heart. The heart we can look at is according to the Bible, especially in places like Proverbs 4.23, the very center of of everything that comes out of you. Proverbs 4.23 says this, Above all else, guard your heart, for from it flow all of the issues of your life. Okay? In other words, the heart is not separate from your mind. Quite the opposite, we're going to learn in just a second. The heart actually is this place that, that, that encircles your allegiances. It's the place where you lock hold of something for its beauties, uh, for its loves. Uh, my favorite definition comes from Jesus uh, in, in Luke 12, uh, 34, when he says, look, for wherever your treasure is, there will be your heart also. That to me is the linchpin. I'm learning that that's kind of the, the best way to understand me. Your heart functions for you in the same way that you function towards a treasure. 
And I mean, I'm not talking about a treasure like with a chest and a lot of gold in it, though for some of you that may be something that you treasure. But I'm talking about the way you treasure your children, the way you treasure your spouse, the way you treasure your favorite hobby. There is this mechanism inside of you that is constantly looking, constantly searching for something to latch onto and to say this, this is what makes me me. If I could only get this. If, if the Bible looks and says, if you really want to know who you are, find out what these governing desires inside of your heart are. Look for these places that, you've, that have put joy in front of you, that you take delight in. Because that will be the evidence of where your heart uh, is. Um, and, and so therefore, I started looking and realizing, uh, especially when people talked about the opposite of our faith, we'll get to in just a second, this whole idea that everything extends from the heart. And so uh, one of my New Testament professors says the better way to look at it is to say that from the heart comes everything. For instance, from the heart comes my intellect. Now look, my mind will consider reasonable only the things that my heart will justify. (laughs) In other words, if my heart is not committed to something, then pure rationality, as we often talk about it, will be twisted so that I can fit it to the confines of my heart. Now, I'm getting that blank look from you because you're going like, he seems really excited about this, but I don't know why this is important. But look, trust me, there is nothing more that people get in the college campus than the dichotomy between your believing and between our rational faculties. So much so that even professors will say to you, hey, if you're one of those religious people and you're all about living by faith, hey, go knock yourself out. That's awesome. But in this classroom, we deal with like facts and reason and rationality. But what the Bible is saying is, is actually your mind is nowhere near that separate from your heart. In other words, this mechanism inside of you is so powerful that it even has the ability to take information that the Bible says God has made plain to you. And and despite the evidence, twist it around to make it serve your own idolatrous ends. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following will give you a great description of that. That men are trying to suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. That my unrighteousness is a means by which I can shut my heart up. But there's other places in Scripture, if we had a longer time to do this study, I've done this in the past, we find that the heart is the seat of the emotions. Now that's probably what you thought before you came in here. Well, my heart is where I feel stuff, right? Well, yes, partly so, but it's also where you think stuff. And as it turns out, it's where your choices come from. It's where your will is exercised. Everything that you are extends from this place inside of you that is like your treasure. When you feel what it means to treasure something, when you function like someone who treasures something, that is your heart at work. It's the place that you pledge yourself to. It's the place that you you just... Do you have something in your life that the looking at the experiencing of is its own reward. Um, I've heard one, there's one pastor, um, I think this, this might be a Keller illustration, who said, you know, when I was in college, someone made me study Mozart in my music appreciation class. He goes, but now I spend all of my excess money on buying Mozart. 
Why? Because something has changed. It's no longer something that I study and look at in a distant way. Now I'm invested in it. I want it. And the funny thing is, when I listen, it's its own reward. It's not so that I can pass a test on Mozart later. It's a joy in and of itself. That is the function of the heart. And of course, the Bible says that mankind was created so that their primary uh, uh, direction of their heart would be directed at their creator. And that all of the things that I enjoy in life would be sort of extensions from that one chief joy. Seek first, Jesus said, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. In other words, God is saying, if you will find in me your chief source of joy and chief source of beauty and allegiance in life, then all these other things you're pursuing will actually bless you instead of cursing you. My career can be a means to an end and not an end in itself. My marriage can be a means to an end and an illustration to who I'm to be in God, both now and into eternity, but not an end in itself. Because what happens, though, in the mind of sinful man is, and really in many ways, the opposite of faith. See, some of you think that the opposite of faith is doubt. And and I'm here to tell you that that's actually false. (laughs) The opposite of faith is not doubt in the Bible. The opposite of faith is whenever someone, instead of locking their heart on on the creator God locks themselves on the creature. And and the Bible calls that idolatry. The opposite of faith is not doubt. And no no offense, but there are college students uh, who have picked this up and are struggling in the university system because the minute that someone begins to question their beliefs, they feel like, wait a minute, I'm I'm not believing. Or they just give in. And the truth is, what we need to do is say, your doubt may actually be the first steps towards having real faith. Because as you begin to question whether or not this is really real, what your heart is really doing is is saying, can I trust this? And we need to be there in that moment. (laughs) We need to be there offering some comfort in that moment uh, to our young people. Because we've got to show that when your allegiances are set on the created order, on the creature, that's idolatry. And we end up losing those things. Okay? Look, and the Bible talks about how faith as it's exercised in the Creator, issues forth into a certain things. Transformation into Christ's likeness, likeness, enlightenment. It's unifying for your life. It allows you to focus. And it issues forth in fruits of the Spirit when my heart is trained on the Creator. But, but we also know the dynamics of idolatry as well, which is what you become like what you worship. Read through the book of Isaiah, and Isaiah is constantly saying, look, you've set up statues for yourself that are wood and stone, And you know what's happening? Your hearts are becoming wooden and stone. You're hardening. You're not able to to reason well. You're not able to think well. Blindness is another sort of curse for idolatry. Things become complex. They become confusing. And what issues forth them are the deeds of the flesh. So this is my whole point. Until we begin to understand what makes me me, if I don't understand my, my constitution... When someone throws in the idea of faith, it's not going to make sense to us until we understand who we are. Okay? So, having given that, let's look and see if we can figure out what the Bible's view of faith is. I like the graphic there because it says faith starts in the heart. Let me run through a couple of things of what faith is not uh, uh, as we go through this. First of all, faith is not a positive mental state. Okay? Positive mental state is what I mean is simply this, that someone is like, well, if I just purge my mind 
of any sort of doubt that I'm believing. You know, you've got little Natalie Wood sitting in the back of the car driving through the suburban neighborhood to avoid the city traffic. And she's, you know, she's doubting, right? Because Santa Claus promised her a new house. And she's sitting back there and she's just on the moment of despair. And you remember how she's sitting back there and she's got her fist in her cheek and she's like, I believe, I believe. It's silly, but I believe. (laughs) Trying to talk herself into this, right? Is that what faith is? Look, the problem here is that when you encounter doubts, it's oftentimes the beginning of, of your faith. Psalm 73 is a great psalm where the writer is confessing that my steps had nearly slipped for I was envious of the arrogant. But a few verses later, he says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned therein. In other words, it takes honesty to ask the Bible the hard questions of life. And that is not something that is a bad experience. So doubt is not, a positive mental state is not what faith is. Secondly, it's also not the opposite of reason. I've kind of been touching on this this whole time. When a college professor sort of creates these dichotomies, it puts people in a bind. Um, And the bind oftentimes, even for the people who don't lose their faith in college, will often be to compartmentalize their faith. That their faith looks like this sort of thing over here that I'll do on Sundays. But really in the classroom, it's totally separate. And by the way, if you're able to compartmentalize your faith in in the world of academia and in the world of church, it's probably just as easy to compartmentalize your faith in your personal life as when at church. In other words, if you're used to sort of separating your faith out there into some like thing that I do on Sunday morning, because, you know, I don't want to go to hell when I die... Um, then I don't doubt that it's not actually impacted any of your soul, right? But the life of faith in the Bible is actually a life of thinking things through. In other words, why? Because the whole teaching of the Bible deals with the reasonableness of our faith. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. That word understand there is the, is the Greek word knowing, where we get the word knowledge. It's the, it's, it's the mind. In other words, by faith, the writer is saying, we reason from the facts to see what is true. I'm just saying the Bible doesn't think that like thinking stuff through and believing are somehow opposite, opposites of the other. Now, some of you are looking going, man, this seems like, this feels like a lot of work. Yes, that's exactly what it is. Um, yeah, I mean, we could go on. I don't have time to move into that. Let's go to the next one. And then the the question, is faith mere agreement? Mere agreement. In other words, some people think that the claims of Christianity and the desire of faith is simply to say, huh, well, okay, yeah, there was a guy named Jesus, and he died died on, on the cross and then rose again from the dead. Sure, that sounds okay to me. Got it. Two thumbs up. I'm a Christian. But the Bible says, especially in places like James chapter 3, or 2, where he says, look, you say you believe. Uh, Well, you know, look, the demons believe and they even shudder at the knowledge. So all you've done, if you acknowledge that these facts are true, is you've elevated yourself up to the level of a demon. That's not biblical faith, just assent, as the reformers put it, to something being truthful. Okay, so these are, this is, faith is not. But what about a positive view uh, of faith? What faith is? Well, number one, as I'm wanting to sort of extend to you, faith comes from the heart. 
Faith comes from the heart. In other words, in our culture, this pitting of our head and our hearts really is a deep problem. Because when the Proverbs writer writes this thing, he's saying that there is something inside of you that, 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 that looks to something and says, man, make sense of my life. Make me whole. Make me something that is, that is joyful and right with the world. Um, this place where you grant life and peace and meaning and happiness. Um, and the funny thing is, is your heart is always active. It's always active. There is no one, how about this, who has no faith. Forgive the double negative. Everyone has faith. Little f, faith. Because faith is in many ways always working in you to look towards something. From the moment in which you're born, I would argue, you're looking to the relationship with your mother saying, this is cool. You're the need giver, need meter, and I'm the needy one. Fulfill that, and this relationship will work out awesome, mom. And if you don't, I'm going to cry and scream bloody murder until you do. Even a child understands that there's a, a, that there's a relationship existing on meeting one's needs. Fulfill in me who I'm supposed to be. The fundamental nature of man's heart is to exercise a searching for substance into which it can put its faith. By the way, this is the contact point for evangelism. Again, we're all worried about giving a proper presentation to someone. When actually, what may be a much better place to start in talking to someone about your faith is asking them where their faith already is. Because you know that there's something that they're building their existence off of. There's something they've invested into. And the Bible says that those idols are crumbling underneath them. And the simple question I think a Christian has for the lost is, how's that working for you? So the Bible, the, the Bible says that faith comes from the heart. But look, if this is the case, then that means that whenever we do come to faith in Christ, it's going to begin in brokenness. It's going to start in a place where, we, where, where, where it honestly hurts. Uh, I, was, uh, I was in uh, the, the city of Los Angeles about three or four years ago. And I got a chance to tour this city with a friend and ask him as a pastor, what's the deal with this place? And he said, this city is a city of broken and shattered dreams. Because people came to this place with the promise of happiness. And all they found, I remember him saying, was a bath of disillusionment. Well, I, it's funny, my, my uh, family and I have gone to go see La La Land uh, which was just a wildly entertaining uh, movie, if you like that old 50s kind of thing. But the fundamental question of that movie, even in our day, is saying, what do I do with my broken dreams? What do I do with the fact that these things that I've rested my heart in are not delivering for me anymore? You know, he said he doesn't love me anymore. What do you do? I, I was told to clear out my desk by 5 o'clock that afternoon. What do you do? They picked someone else for the promotion. Dad is leaving mom, we just found out. Uh, your brother relapsed and is back in rehab. The test showed positive for cancer. What is the age at which you suddenly realize that the world is in a constant state of decay? Constantly breaking out from under. And that human beings are grasping at something that they can build their life off of. But here's the deal. Faith, because of its nature will never happen until we despair of where we are. And the tragedy, one of the hardest parts about bringing evangelistic efforts into the life of someone is because at that moment, their idols are still blessing them. You know, that idol will provide a very short measure of blessing. And there'll be a moment where you can live in the delusion that like, I'm cool. 
I've got this awesome career. You know, my wife and I get along eh, reasonably well. You know, my children are somewhat well-adjusted. It's just working for me right now. It's hard. It's hard to evangelize those people. Isn't it interesting then that when Jesus came around, the people that most immediately reacted well to his teaching were the pimps and the prostitutes. Because his message opened up with saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, what he was saying was, those people are going to get my message a little easier because they're looking down around the world and saying, yeah, this place stinks and I'm part of the problem. In other words, faith in the Bible begins in despair. There's a wonderful story in Luke chapter 7 where Jesus is walking along the way and gets interrupted by some servants of a centurion. And they say, look, there's a guy, we love him, we need you to come and heal somebody in his house. A servant of his needs healing. And all of a sudden, the Jewish people kind of spring up. The religious people of their day are like, oh, Jesus, hey, look at last. I know you've been doing all your healing thing all over, but look, this guy, he is totally worthy to have you come and do this. Like, he built our synagogue, and he's a friend to, to the Jewish people. Like, go help him. And Jesus is kind of like, all right. He doesn't really respond. It's kind of mentalist. He's like, hmm, all right, here we go. And along the way, he's met by another servant who says, look, I've got a message to you from the centurion. He says, look, actually, <laughs> don't listen to those religious people. I'm not even worthy to have you under my roof. Honestly, I'm a guy who's in charge of people, and I know you're in charge of all things. If you just say the word, the, you know, the sickness will be gone from my servant. And Jesus listens to this and is like, wow. And you know what he says? He says, in all of Israel, I have never seen such faith. <laughs> and it's fascinating because the Jews are trying to argue for his worthiness, but he's trying to convince Jesus that I am unworthy. He got it. You'll know you're beginning to believe when it begins in despair of yourself. When leaning on yourself has, has stopped working for you, you've begun to believe. Okay? Finally, faith functions like your imagination. Faith is like your imagination. Think about this. Paul Tripp sort of let, let me in on this at one point. Faith is that function inside of you that dreams of a life, that has a mental vision that you wake up with the morning of what you're going to do, who you're going to be at your job. You may be the hero that day. You may, it may be mundane for you, but you've got a mental image of yourself that you live off of. And every step that you take in your life is a goal to achieve that, that thing that rests in your imagination. If you want to find out about your faith, follow your daydreams. Where does your mind drift when you have nothing else to think about? Are they daydreams of heroism? Could you not be looking for a hero? Are they daydreams of true love? Could you not be looking for the true love? In other words, your heart functions like your imagination. That is, I begin to see something that's not there. Faith is, Roman, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, the evidence of things unseen. Well, how do people get evidence of things they don't see? In your imagination. Follow your imagination. And when we come together as God's people in church... Inform your imagination. Talk to your imagination because Paul, in every one of his epistles, is going to say, you, were, you, you died and you were raised again to life. And you're going, I don't think I died. Or is it, what are you talking about? And he's saying, look, your life is hid in Christ and in God. That when he died, you died. So that now in your imagination, when the curse of the devil begins to scream inside your ear, 
How could you dare stand up and think that you're a religious person? You deserve to die for the junk that you've done. That the way you answer that is you go, wait a minute, I already died. That verdict has already been passed and served. (laughs) I've already served the penalty. Death has already happened because my life is hid with him. That's the function of your imagination. And we come together to have our imagination informed so that we live out in the midst of that. Believing, looking to Christ and saying, this is the highest beauty I could possibly imagine. Or like Jonathan Edwards said, that he is altogether lovely. Hey, look, before we move on to repentance here, and I've just got a few things I want to say about repentance. It really is okay to admit to yourself right now, whoosh, I mean, I grew up in church and everything, and like, I really think I'm a Christian, do my best to act like a Christian does, but like, I ain't that all into it, and you're kind of making me a little nervous with all this talk about like finding him as my chief joy and everything else. Look, rather than do what I think the heart, what I think the devil wants us to do in that moment, which is to kind of panic and be like, all right, man, something wrong. Instead, let let it kind of channel you to curiosity. Huh. Like there's people in the Bible who are just as much of a screw up as I am. And they went and like died for their faith. And that's not because they were better Christians. The Bible will not let you think that for the stories it tells about those people. What it says is, maybe I missed something. (laughs) Maybe they came across something that I might have missed. And I don't think there is any better way to take a step in faith than to say, you know what, I'm coming back next week because I don't know if I know God that way. I'm just curious. All these people kind of died for it. Say it again. (laughs) Run that past me one more time. And there's a lot of times at the end of that, people will wake up one day and say, he is, he's altogether lovely and somebody that I can build my life upon. Okay, the Bible's view of faith. Now, why did I spend 20 minutes doing that and only 10 minutes on repentance? Because you love faith more than repentance. No, Because if you will define faith correctly, it will help you enormously in understanding repentance. Okay? Repentance. The Bible's view of repentance is a turning around. It's a turning away from. And I got a handful of things I want to throw out there. Number one, repentance is a change of mind. That's a literal translation of the word we have translated repentance. It is a meta-noane. Remember the noane of the mind? It is a change of mind. It's basically looking at the world and saying, this has got to change. Woody Allen once said, I love this, my favorite Woody Allen quotes. My one regret in life is that I'm not someone else. (laughs) Um, This is a little bit of the same thing that Job is saying. Job woke up and said, I abhor myself. There is a moment in repentance where you look at the sum total of you and say, ah, it's just wrong. It's not right. Repentance is a turning away and, 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 and account, uh, acknowledging the fact that you really are helpless. Secondly, repentance involves confession. You rarely hear the Bible talk about repentance where it's not talking about some, some way of an outward acknowledgement of it. That is confession to God and to man. Yes, part of that is in prayers, but another part of it is to find faithful people to, to confess to. Now, please, before you get uncomfortable about this, about what we're going to do this this morning, um, public sins, I do think, require public repentance, and private sins require private repentance. Um, um, But all, and and working out the details of those are what our elders are for. So um, Lee and Johnny and Doug and everybody else will help you with this. Toby's taking notes about how he's going to work. Now, everything for you on this. Um, I'm just saying this, repentance in the Bible 
does not happen without some kind of outward motion. Okay? An outward motion. And I don't know what that motion looks like. It might be tiny. It might be something nobody else notices. But it might be a big thing where you stand up and actually own something. Thirdly, in, uh, repentance involves grief. It involves grief, but not remorse. Remorse is the fear of getting caught or the sadness from getting caught. Grief, however, is a failure to love and a failure to be loved. A failure to actually acknowledge that God is who he is. This is what happened in the garden. When the original sort of sin happened in the garden, what happens? God is standing there and the devil looks at Eve and Adam and says, Look, um, I'm not trying to be critical of God or anything. I mean, I know he's got his way of doing things. But like, I hear that like, you're not allowed to eat from any tree in the garden. Like, What's up with that? It's a beautiful garden. Why can't you eat of any tree in the garden? Now, to Eve's credit, she actually says, no, that's not right. We can eat of any of the trees in the garden. There's just one in the middle that we can't eat from. And then she adds this, and neither shall we touch it. Whoa, whoa. You kind of want for God to be there and be like, wait, what did you just say? I didn't say anything about not touching it. I said not to eat it. But at that very moment, you know that Eve has the hook. You want to know why? Because she suddenly has exaggerated God's law. She's looked and said, mm, mm, wow, okay. I don't know, he is being a little unreasonable now that you mention it. And so Satan's like, I got you. Now we're ready for the full-blown lie. <laughs> you're not going to die. God actually knows that the second that you eat of it, then you know, you're going to be like him. He's trying to keep you out of the God club, Eve. That's what's really going on here. The full-blown doubt. But what, what's at the heart? God does not have your best interest at heart, Eve. He is not someone that really cares about you. Remorse is the fear of like, oh, I got caught again. Grief over sin is like, I have wounded someone who loves me. Has that ever been there? Number four, repentance therefore involves turning. Look, and there is so much that we've got to do on this. We don't have anywhere near time. But some of the best writers today are looking to try to expand since evangelicalism is kind of, oh, let's uncork that one. Evangelicalism is kind of waning in the last few years, especially with this upcoming generation. Evangelicalism as a, as a title for where they are does not fit their description. And one of the things that's happening is a lot of good writers are saying is because we have made repentance a purely internal affair of feeling badly for sin and confessing to God, which is appropriate and good. But they're also asking about the way in which we kind of set up our lives. James K.A. Smith has written a bunch of stuff on how we form cultural liturgies. That is, we have these patterns that we get into, these liturgies of life that are themselves not sanctified by the way the gospel would have us to look at things. Again, I'll just crack that door for you. And if you get interested, look at James K. Smith's stuff. Number five, the Bible's view of repentance keeps mercy in view. Look, this is such a big deal. Returning to someone who is still angry at you is a chore and a burden. But returning to a place of love and acceptance is a joy and a delight. Micah 7, 18 is one that you've got to remember in thinking about the repentance. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever. Listen, listen, listen. Because he delights in steadfast love. God, we, we worship a God who loves to show mercy to his people. 
And that little knowledge can oftentimes be the trigger to say, it's time for me to return. I've been out in the far country for all, time, all long. And if you really looked inside my soul, you realize I'm feeding slop to pigs. And in my father's house is joy and acceptance. Number six, repentance is never the ground of forgiveness. Look, this is a very big deal. Um, we can never, one of the things that will quickly thwart your ability to repent well is imagining that our repentance is somehow the thing that made me acceptable to God. That's not it. Even uh, George Whitfield, the great uh, American um, uh, evangelist in the, in the sort of southern colonies, once said, look, even your repentance needs to be repented of. God could condemn you for the, most, for the best prayer you ever put together. <laughs> even the things that I, are my emotions that I think are good are actually things uh, that are fraught with sin. So what does that mean? That means, therefore, that I can never make my repentance the ground of my forgiveness. It's never the foundation on which I stand. What is the foundation? Really good question. The offer of the gospel in the scripture. The fact that Jesus says, come, that's the ground. That's the warrant of faith, as it were, the way Spurgeon put it. Seventh, forgiveness, repentance is a lifestyle. Hey, if you're thinking, well, you know, I did repent. I repented back in the day then one of the people that has a problem with you is Martin Luther. You know, Martin Luther, in the beginning of the Reformation, it's sort of, you know, uh, anecdotally known as, took, made a big list uh, of things that he had problems with, with the way in which the, 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 the church was going at that time. And he nailed them up to a community bulletin board, which happened to be the door of a church in, in, in Wittenberg. And the very first one of the 95 theses, you ever remember what it was? It says, we are convinced that the whole of life is repentance. Repentance is a pasture for God's people. It is, it, it, it's, it's a resting place. It's, a camp, it's an encampment. It's a posture that you take on of repentance. And it, it'd be really fun to sort of navigate your conflicts in life around that question. Do I live as someone who, can, who is easy to confront? Or do you got this big chip on your shoulder? What I do now? You got another one out there? Oh, good. Does that not show that on the inside you're like, look, I want some credit, right? The Bible says that the posture of repentance makes me look and be like, oh, oof. No, no, come on, bring it on. I am more than capable of destroying myself and you. So I need to hear this. A posture of repentance opens one's one up. You know, some of, the, some of the people in Jesus' day did what we do. Um, you know, there was some who came to him and was like, hey, Jesus, there was this uh, tower in Siloam that fell on a bunch of people. So, like, we're just asking the question, like, who sinned in order to make that thing fall? And you're looking kind of saying, that's a little weird. Why would they say that? Oh, yeah? Go back and listen to the commentary that came out of people after 9-11. Boy, were we looking for somebody to blame, you know? Who is it? Ah, it's the liberals. Ah, it's the conservatives. Ah, it's the Muslims. Ah. Everybody had somebody they're trying to blame. Who sinned to make this happen? Remember Jesus' response to this? He's like, um, you know, neither they nor anybody else. Um, the truth is, unless you repent, then you also will perish. <laughs> kind of want to just ask a theoretical question about the tower. That was okay. And Jesus then tells this weird parable about a fig tree. And then he curses the fig tree and it stops producing. and It's just weird. Well, as you look into it, and this is, I heard a preacher one time say, the, 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 the fig tree is a type of fig tree. The average fig tree in that sort of ancient Near Eastern time would produce figs a little over 10 months out of the year. 
In other words, it was the normal state of the fig tree to be producing figs. And what, what, what the preacher said was, it is the normal state of a Christian to live in a posture of repentance. Hey, are you teachable? Are you correctable? That's a great question to ask if repentance is there. And then lastly, repentance logically follows faith. Man, this is such a big deal. Um, Repentance is not this sort of one moment of decision, but it's a radical heart transformation that reverses the whole direction of life. But what you've got to remember is that in God's calculus, um, repentance naturally follows faith. Now, I know you're looking and saying, oh, wait, 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 wait. I don't know if I can sort of distinguish between those two. And if you're thinking that, that's exactly right. Of course, uh, Sinclair Ferguson, and I've recommended this book a couple of times, and I'm going to do it again, published this last year a book called The Whole Christ, where he has a wonderful discussion centering around this guy by the name of Thomas Boston. Remember the name Thomas Boston. He's one of the important ones from our Scottish sort of divines. And there was this, this is sort of mid-1700s, there was this little obscure controversy that happened in one of the small little Scottish presbyteries that uh, Thomas Boston kind of got caught up in. And it started talking about the role that repentance plays in the life of the believer. And what Boston was talking about is, is he said, look, oftentimes you'll have people who are really struggling with whether or not they really have assurance of salvation. You know, do I really have, am am I really with God? Is God with me? Am I really a Christian? Do I have the hope of heaven when I die? Am I really, uh, 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 am I a possessor? Am I just a confessor? And what is it? Is it real in me? Boston would say to that person that oftentimes the instinct of the heart is to begin to take a census of the fruits of repentance in their own heart. Oh, well, how have we been doing? And how long does it take for them before you did end in despair there? And Boston said, that's, he goes, what you're, he was talking to pastors. He goes, what your people will want to do when they look at their lives and see that there's not the fruit that should be there is that they begin to purpose themselves to produce more fruit. And Boston says, that's wrong-headed. He says, rather, send them back to the joy that is in Christ. That somewhere along the way, they have missed something in Christ that is better than whatever idols they've held up. Yes, decry, denounce, uh, 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 condemn, publicly bring down the idols that people make in life. Of course, call forth repentance. But you cannot turn from without turning to. And it's interesting. In every action of turning to, you always turn from. That's it. Faith and repentance. Every turn towards is a turn from. By the way, this will help explain some things for for all of you. A lot of people that you know have been through conversions that really after their conversion, they're oftentimes really kind of, there's a lot of stuff that's really the same in their life. Well, oftentimes what people turn from and turn to is they'll turn to getting their life together. They will turn to, well, I don't know, I'm married and we got kids now and I don't know, I want the kids raised in church. I want them to be moral, you know. So like, let's go back. We'll join the church. And suddenly that is what you're turning to. But here's the deal. That won't last. It's not sufficiently beautiful. <laughs> You've already noticed that. I joined church and that was what I, what I, that's what I put my faith in. And man, do we disappoint you. I mean, buckle up. If we hadn't yet, it's going to happen. Don't put your faith in saying I'm going to change my life to kind of go back to church. 
No, we turn to Jesus and to something. And again, like I said, even if it's just mere curiosity, it's enough to make me start to doubt all those other things which would cloud, which would somehow keep me from having a clear vision of seeing something that's altogether lovely uh, in Him.